changed people because of what we've experienced. We'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to, to Faith, this beautiful Lord's Day. We're in a message series with the eternal word, the eternal word, the living word, Jesus Christ and the scriptures, which point to him. Question for you. What does it mean to be a spirit-filled Christian? A spirit-filled Christian. I just asked ourselves that question a lot when I was younger. Back in Frostburg, uh, I went to university, Frostburg, Frostburg, we hit an university, I was one of the leaders there, uh, I think it was my junior year maybe, and um, we had uh, a Friday night meeting, every, every large group meeting on Friday nights at Frostburg, Old Main, where this event took place every Friday night, 6.30. One Friday night, we invited a, one of our alumni to come to talk on prayer, and he came and he talked on prayer, but he didn't just talk about prayer, unfortunately. His motive was to... to turned the university group into a Pentecostal group, a group that uh, would, would, would uh, have all the uh, emotions of a Pentecostal revival. And as one of the leaders of the university chapter, it was a very troubling time for some of us, and uh, it divided the group in a lot of ways. Uh, I know Sister Carol was, I don't know if you were at Frostburg at that, that year or not. She went to Frostburg a couple years after me. But... Uh, the, 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 the motivation was that we would be a spirit-filled group of Christians, those filled with the spirit and would have the manifestations that come when people think that you are filled with the spirit. And over the years, I've come to a very settled position about the spirit of God. And I believe that to be filled with the word of God and the spirit of God are very, very closely connected. One of the most important verses regarding the authority of the New Testament authors is our passage today that links the Holy Spirit to the authoritative writings of the Holy Apostles. Let's look at this passage. It's John chapter 16, verses 5 to 15. Find that in your ESV translation and stand. Let's listen to the God's word. It's on the overhead to my left, your right. John 16, verses 5 through 15. <clears throat> Verse 5, but now I'm going to him who sent me, where Jesus is speaking, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For I do, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come he will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you all that the father has is mine therefore i said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you amen god's word you may be seated 
The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'd love to talk about him because I, I feel that he doesn't get enough attention in our circles. Uh, in, in fact, I would suggest that very few followers of Jesus have a very balanced view of the Spirit of God. We're very imbalanced. I think there's two extreme camps. For, there's, first of all, the camp that, that pays too much attention to the Holy Spirit. These are my Frostburg friends. <laughs> they, 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 unfortunately, we believe, seek to understand him through formulas and, and through particular gifts and outward uh, uh, signs and manifestations. Many of you have probably heard of people who want you to get the ghost, to get the Holy Ghost, to have some experiences with God in your life, in your soul, that are extraordinary. Those in that camp are people who clearly love the Jesus of Scripture and, and they want others to love Jesus as well. They want to, to live for him, all out for him. Great zeal. People with great zeal. But at times, they can go a little too far on the emotional extreme, challenging what is seen as normal, rational behavior. They freely talk about Jesus, not always in English, by the way, they talk about Jesus a lot, usually boldly, often sometimes with at, at uncomfortable volume. <laughs> and then there's another camp, the opposite camp. Many of us belong to this camp. Some of us are chartered members of that camp. <laughs> we tend to be a little too cautious about the Spirit of God. We pay too little attention to the Holy Spirit and his work. Some essentially ignore him. We want to manage him. We want to control him we, rather than let him have his way in our lives. Notice that I'm saying we. <laughs> I know which camp I lean towards. We are those who quickly quote the very biblical warnings of the Apostle Paul that all things be done decently and in order. We're not as swift to quote the Apostle Paul, who equally biblically reminds us, don't quench the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. So, so there's a charismatic camp and there's the cautious camp. You know who you are. You know which camp you lean, lean on. We seek a balance. The Scriptures want to have a balanced spirituality to worship God with our mind and our heart. And I have a feeling that many of us need to have a deeper, a better experience of the Holy Spirit, the forgotten member of the Trinity. To be fair to our camp, the, the Reformed or Presbyterian camp, whatever you want to call us, uh, I would say we have a wonderful understanding of what the Spirit of God does in our lives before we become Christians. That the Spirit draws us to salvation. We, we understand that well. We teach that well. It's one of our strengths. But we fall short of understanding what he does after we become followers of Christ. Many of us believe the church in our land needs ex to experience another major revival, another major awakening. We, we look back at, at our history, the Revolutionary War, and, and, and days after the Civil, before the Civil War, and, and, and where God sent awakenings, revival, major revivals to our land to, to, to shake up our land, to become uh, people who would uh, pay more attention to the gospel. And the revivals always had clear biblical preaching towards repentance and faith in Christ, 
with the freedom of the Spirit. In fact, the freedom of the Spirit often is what ended revivals because they got too emotional. You know your church history. But word and spirit should never be contradictory to each other. It's like a, it's like a railway with two rails. They go to hand in hand, step, step by step. This passage today, I want, I want you to understand that God uses both the Holy Spirit and the Holy Word to, to, give, to, to bring us to faith in Jesus and to help us grow in Jesus. Spirit and Word working together. Holy Spirit and Holy Bible. The, the, that's our title, the Holy Spirit and Holy Bible. And this passage, it, it takes, takes place in the upper room the night before Jesus died for our sins, before he was arrested and crucified. I'm going to focus on three things in this passage, in this text. Uh, uh, the Spirit gives us uh, uh, words of, of God's presence, of God's conviction, and of God's authority. His presence, his conviction, his authority. First, the, the words of the, the, apostle, the, the Spirit-filled apostles, the apostolic words, we have words that bring the presence of God before us. The first, uh, first uh, uh, Verses 5, 6, and 7, first three verses. Jesus tells them that, that, that he's going to the one who sent him. In, in the Gospel of John, the Father is the one who has sent the Son. And he's going back to the Father. But he reminds them that none of you asked me where I'm going. Now, that's interesting because earlier they had asked him that. We'll talk about that in a second. He's in the upper room, and the apostles are kind of quiet, and they're upset, and, and um, <clears throat> their hearts are filled with sorrow, it says in, in verse 7. Because Jesus keeps saying he's going away. He's going back to the one who sent him. In John 14, he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Because they were disturbed, they were troubled. And in, in, in that paragraph of John 14, they asked, Lord, where are you going? Where are you going? It's, so it's interesting that at, first, at face value, verse 5 looks in, inaccurate. They had asked where are you going. What does he mean? Hadn't they asked the question? Yes. One commentator, Guzik, says, uh, Jesus must mean not only the words of the question, but the heart of it. Their previous asking was in the sense, what will happen to us when you leave? Not in the sense Jesus meant here, what will happen to you when you leave? So it's the same question, but there's a different thing in their hearts, and Jesus knows that. Verse 6. Because I've said this, these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Again, they're troubled. As the evening goes on, they're becoming more and more clear. It's becoming clearer to them that, yes, he is going away. He's been talking about it, and it's about to happen. He's, he, he said he would, be, he would suffer and be, and be, be and, 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 but from the religious leaders and, and that he was going to die, and, and it's about to happen. And, and they have that look on their face like they can't believe what's happening, and it's going to happen. And they're conflicted, and they're disturbed, and they're upset. He's leaving. And he surprisingly says to them, I'm leaving, but it's not all bad. It's good. It's good that I'm leaving. And they say, what? what? Again, confusing them again. Because the helper will be left. The helper will be left with. I, verse 7, if I go away, the helper won't come. If I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus died, and he rose, he ascended, and he seat, was seated at the right hand of God the Father, and then from high he did a couple of things that were very important. He gave gifts to men, it says in Ephesians 4. The gifts of the Spirit, um, first 
Corinthians 12, by one spirit, we all baptize into one body. He gives his spirit to, 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 to those who would believe. Now, remember the, the Pentecost sermon of, of Peter? That was the core argument, that what they were experiencing in the spirit of God was the fact that Jesus was now the right hand of God the Father, dispensing upon them the gift of the spirit. He gave gifts. And the second thing that he did from heaven he, is he completed the word the word of the Spirit. These apostles were to be the agents of revelation, the agents of Scripture, to complete the Holy Bible. So the church is built, it says in Ephesians, on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, the prophets the Old Testament and the apostles the New Testament. And so he said, if, if he doesn't go away, he cannot send the Spirit to complete the Scripture, the one who will be the ultimate personal helper to give them assistance. His soon departure, therefore, is to their advantage. And you know what? It's to our advantage as well. Because not only does he give them the Spirit, he gives all the Spirit who will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. One, one commentator, Dodd, says, the withdrawal of the bodily presence of Christ was the essential condition of his universal spiritual presence. He couldn't dwell in you and I if he had a body. But through the Spirit, he dwells in us by faith. That's the wonderful truth of the New Testament. He's our helper. He's our helper. We talk about the word helper. Uh, in, 19, in 1719, that was 297 years ago, Isaac Watts wrote a hymn. He was, he, he was uh, reflecting on the Psalms. He was writing hymns on the Psalms. One of the Psalms, Psalm 90, reflected on, on, on that great Psalm. And he wrote a hymn, God, our help in ages past. Oh, God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, our eternal home. Before the hills in order stood, or earth received her frame, from everlasting thou art God to endless years the same. God, our help in ages past, hope for years to come. Be thou our guide while life shall last and our eternal home. Home. God is a helper. He comes to the aid. He's an ever-present help in times of trouble. He, the phrase, I love this phrase in, in, in the first verse, he's our shelter from the stormy blast. Anybody got any stormy blasts in our life right now? Well, you feel like, like all is lost, where just everything's coming at you? The, the promise of the word, the promise of the spirit of God is in the midst of your stormy blast. God is your helper. He's there. He's with you when you need him. You know, the, la the last few months our, our, in our family has been a, a stormy blast that we've experienced, a, a unique blast in our, in our family. Uh, the deterioration of my son's marriage has really caused a, a lot of pain and suffering and hardship for us. It's, it's sad whenever, you, you know, you see that happen. Um, it's, it's new territory for us. And um, it's sad that two little babies are involved, our grandkids. It's sad, it's, it's messy. It, 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 it shakes you. It shakes your faith in, in some, one sense. You know, God, are you still there? Are you, st are you helping us? How do you cope? You know, we do have a helper. We do have a helper. The Holy Spirit, he his word comes and reminds us that he is there, that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. He has helped us through other stormy blasts. He will help us in this storm.
is helping us. And that's the confidence of those who know Christ and who understand that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring that kind of confidence in all kinds of situations in our lives. God never promised his people that there would be no problems and storms. But that when the problems and storms come, we have a helper. We have a helper. We have one who assists us, who's with us. The great psalm is Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved, who keeps you. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. It's a promise of the Lord's help and his keeping in our lives. And it's interesting, uh, 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 Gene Peterson has written a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And I like what he says about this psalm. He, he teaches us that the lasting help doesn't come from the hills. I mean, you see, I lift my eyes to the hills from where my help comes from. He's, he's saying that, that, that that's not what the, the, the psalmist is saying here. The help doesn't come from the creation from the hills. It's the, 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 it comes from the one who created the hills. He also reminds us that, that in the hills, uh, in, in the high places of Israel, there was idolatrous worship that was going on. There, there was false worship going on in the hills. And so, is it, and so the psalmist says, I, I'm not trusting the creation, the, 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 the hills that God created. I'm not trusting uh, the false worship by people whom God created who worship you falsely. I don't, I, I, where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the creator of the hills and of the false worshipers. That's where I put my trust. That's where my help comes from. He's a helper. He's a keeper. The word helper, let's talk about this word helper. It's a compound word in the original language. It's a, the, the word parakaleo. It's a compound word. Um, it means a, a companion or assistant or a counselor. The authorized version uses the word comforter. One who comes alongside. It actually refers to, a, a, it's a legal word, a lawyer who gives legal aid and legal counsel, who pleads uh, one's case, who stands beside to give assistance in a court case. You Maybe you're familiar with that Greek word. Um, the ministry of, of wives in our denomination, Maria Garriott, of course, is one of the, the leaders of this, Parakaleo is what we call it because these are, 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 are church planning wives who come alongside their husband. They come alongside to be assistants, to help them, to give aid and help. Uh, again, Guzik, uh, the commentator, says the spirit is the advocate or the helper of those who believe in Jesus. They're counsel for the defense. But in relation to the unbelievers, to the godless world, he acts as counsel for the prosecution. But he is the legal helper. Romans 15 reminds us that, that, that hope, encouragement comes from the scriptures. It's from the scriptures that we find hope. What do we have? We have apostolic words that they bring us into the presence of God, the one who helps us in times when we need that help. The second thing I see in the passage here is, is, is the words of these spirit-filled apostles. We have words that bring the conviction of God. Verses 8 to 11, conviction. Verse 8 gives the general theme there that uh, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Because it says that sin is the truth about man, righteousness is the truth about God, and judgment is the inevitable combination of these two truths. 
We're going to meet God. Verse 9. Sin. You know, 1 Peter tells us that in verse 18, Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Many accuse us who would be called Calvinists of having a low view of human nature. Actually, that's not only half true. We dare to believe all this scripture says about the human condition. One of my joys in having grandkids is, is watching them from the beginning grow. Watch, I've watched my own kids grow a few years ago. Now I'm watching my grandkids grow. And again, reminding me of this whole thing about the nature of man, the nature of human beings. They, they come out and they look so innocent, don't they? And they're so vulnerable and so dependent and, and they're little bundles of joy, aren't they? But what is their nature? Are they good? Are they evil? Are they neutral with a blank slate, as some would say? Who are they? What are they like? What does the scripture say? The answer to that question will, will, will determine, in one sense, how you, how you raise them, <laughs> what your view of, of, of them is. You know, the simple answer is that they are, they are not good and they're not evil. They're not neutral. They are fallen sinners, just like you and I, <laughs> created in God's image, just like you and I. They have both dignity from God and depravity from Adam. Dignity, worth, and glory. In fact, John chapter 1, in, in the, the prologue of, God, of John's gospel, he says that, that he calls Jesus the light that enlightens every man's coming to the world. You know, every human being has been born, has been, is, has, carries the image of God. It's marred, it's fallen, but every human being created by God bears his image. That's why it's important how we treat people. Everyone has dignity. Implications of that are incredible. But they also have depravity. They're in Adam, and they have a, a, a bent towards rebellion against the authority of God, authorities in their lives. John 3 says, we don't come to faith because our deeds are evil. And all of us have that in us from the beginning, that propensity towards greatness and garbage. That's who we are. That's who we are. Guzik says, before the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, one may say, I make a lot of mistakes. Nobody's perfect. But after the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, one may say, I'm a lost rebel fighting against God and his law. I must rely on Jesus to get right with God. The Spirit convicts us of sin. 2 Corinthians says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness, verse 10. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, you will see me no longer. Gusick says, no, normally, conviction is followed by judgment. When the Holy Spirit works, there's an in-between step. This step right here. The revelation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which can satisfy the judgment for the convicted person. See, in, in Paul in Romans 3 tells us that the righteous requirement of God is given to us through Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Romans 3, 22 and to 24, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified or declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Folks, that's the gospel, that we have a righteousness, not of our own, 
but a righteousness that, that is given to us through Jesus Christ and faith in him. Despite our sin, that righteousness is available. The perfect righteousness of Christ. And then the Spirit, verse 11, will convict concerning judgment. Judgment, because the ruler of this world, that's Satan, is judged. Judgment. Hebrews says uh, about Christ, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The sacrifice of Christ, which we talked about here. And just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Hebrews chapter 9. God judged the rebellion of Satan, and he will judge the rebellion of mankind. Justice shall be done. When people talk about being saved, the question is, saved from what? They're saved from, from, from judgment. Beware of gospel messages that weaken that thought. We're saved from the condemnation and punishment that we deserve. And we're not saved because God decided to just overlook it. No, we're, we, we, we are saved by trusting in Christ as our judgment, as our word propitiation. He's the propitiation. He's the righteous one. He's the, the substitute. <clears throat> the Father poured out on him his holy wrath that we deserved. And on that cross, Jesus said, it is finished. You know why he said that? Because the wrath that we deserved had been satisfied at that point. It was finished. You could now die. Justice had been satisfied. Look, the gospel doesn't say that God will overlook justice. The, God, the gospel says that God will satisfy justice through his son. That's the beauty of the gospel. And so the, the question is, have you, have you trusted in Christ for yourself? Or are you just hoping that somehow the God of the universe will include you in his presence apart from Jesus? The apostles have told us not just the facts of the gospel, but the implications of the gospel. And they're very clear. Listen to what the apostle Paul proclaimed to the people of Athens in chapter 17 of Acts. The times of ignorance God overlooked, and now he commands all people everywhere to repent. It means to turn. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's talking about Jesus, folks. And, 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 and God has caused all to repent and come to the, to the right understanding and a right relationship with his son. The spirit convicts sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, the, the last thing here is verses 12 to 15. The, the spirit-filled apostles are going to go forth with words that carry the authority of God. The authority of God. Divine authority. So Jesus says there, I have more things to say, but you can't bear them now. There's some things, more things I want to tell you, but you're not ready to hear them. When the Spirit comes, you get, you'll be able to understand these things. The Spirit's going to come and, and, and take their mind. They'll understand these things. The Spirit of truth comes. Verse 13. <clears throat> truth is that which is consistent with what really is. And God has created us in such a way that we can discern reality. He's given us a book that agrees with what our senses tell us. But notice in the, in the text, and it's literally the, the definite article here is the truth. And so he's talking about the truth. And earlier he, in that conversation, he had said to them, 
I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So, 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 so truth is always connected to Jesus, who is the truth. It always is connected to Jesus, who's the creator and sustainer of all things. The website Bible.org has a great, great statement here. That this does not refer to absolute truth in every area, but only in the area of spiritual truth are the teachings of Jesus. Again, it's connected to Jesus. This refers primarily to the inspiration of the authors of the New Testament scriptures. Commentators agree with that. that th th these, this passage here refers to the inspiration of, of, the, of the New Testament, which he was giving them the authority to write scripture, to write holy scripture for us. The, the Spirit guided them in unique, authoritative ways. There are many things that human beings learn and build upon, and God has given us the, the creation mandate to rule and take dominion, and, and we've done that well, haven't we, as human beings? Science and engineering and, and math, all the many disciplines of knowledge. Those who study them find things that are not written in the Bible, don't they? And that's okay. But they can never find true truth that nullifies that which is written in Scripture. Because the apostolic words carried the authority of God, the authority of God. ESB study Bible says uh, the activity of the Holy Spirit in declaring the things that are to come suggests that he knows the future. Something that is true of God alone. This gives evidence of the full deity of the Holy Spirit. We haven't said much about this, but Father, Son, and Spirit, all are divine. The full deity of the Holy Spirit is something that we need to understand and embrace. The Holy Spirit. You know, Tuesday's Election Day here in Maryland, and there's these primaries that have been going on. I heard an interesting discussion a few weeks ago about um, the, the two parties and how there's so much confusion about who's going who's to get enough votes at the, at the conventions to, to go over the top. And it, some people are saying, you know, it would be nice if the Democrats, here's a picture, the Democrats, the Republicans could, um, could combine. When you have, you know, the, each of the parties you'd have, one would be the, pre the go for president, the other would be for vice president. And that would just solve it. It would be, be a slam dunk. They could win. And, and I don't know if that's true, but I know this, that it takes a lot of ego and confidence in yourself to run for president. And to be vice president, you've got to give that up. <laughs> you've got to give that up. And so I'm not sure that any compromises where we have a combined ticket, I'm not sure that's going to happen. I guess we'll have to stay tuned. But here's my point. My point is simply this. And the Godhead is not that rivalry. There's not that infighting of who's going to be on top and who's going to be second. There's, there's a functional order. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The, the Godhead. We need to reflect on the Godhead more. And, and because in this passage, one of the, one of the major uh, debates in the early church was, how does the Holy Spirit relate to the Godhead? Is he God? And, all? and, and this passage was a key passage to tell us that, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Father rules and reigns, and the Son this equal dignity and equal honor. The Son submits to the Son. It's going to give things over to the Father, tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. There's a submission of the Son to the Father. There's an order. There's a perfect harmony within the Godhead through a model. It's a model for marriages, by the way. It's a model for our nation, but I'm not sure our nation will ever do that in the political world. But we need to strive to, ex to experience that unity. But 
what I want you to see is the role of the Holy Spirit here. The Spirit, who is equal in dignity and honor and glory, his role is to lift up Jesus. It's to point to Jesus. Not to point to himself, but to point to Jesus. That's what we have. He's going to talk about things to come. Again, that, that, that probably talks about future things, book of Revelation, which John was the human author there. In verses 14 to 15, the things that bring him glory, all the things in the New Testament, his life, his death, his resurrection, the meaning and significance of those things, they bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people hear the story of Jesus and they say, what does the death of a first century Jew have to do with me? In my world. You know, apart from the Holy Spirit's work, that response makes a lot of sense. What does it have to do with us? The Spirit of God makes that real to us, doesn't he? He makes those truths real to us, real to us. Jesus reminds us that the Father, by his Spirit, must draw us to understand these things. Unless they're born of the Spirit, they will never see it. That was our story. We believe because God drew us by his spirit. Which is why there's two things that, have to, that, that, that are essential as we share our faith with other people. There's two very important things. One is that we have a clear proclamation to reach the mind of the unbeliever. And the second is that we have fervent prayer to God for the unbeliever. That God might soften hearts. Proclamation. And prayer. We have an authority from heaven. Authority from heaven, the Father and the Son. Divine authority. You know, <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 4 <clears throat> it says that the word of God is alive and active or powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. We have a weapon, the word of God. This, the word of the Spirit is a weapon that we have. <clears throat> An incredible weapon that's at our disposal. We should never apologize for how we use the Scripture. We need to use the Scripture. I was thinking about the, 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 the uh, scene in the old movie, the Indiana Jones movie. I, was, I think it was the first one. I don't know which movie it was. It was one of the Indiana Jones movies. Um, somebody out there, I'm sure, knows. But there's a, there's a scene in the marketplace. You, you, if you know the movie, you laugh when you see that. There's this great scene as the, the man with the machete comes, and he's going uh, uh, to go after Indy Jones, and he, he waves in the crowds looking and think that, that he's going to get it. And then Indy Jones, doesn't, he doesn't really say anything. He just has a look in his face. And he pulls out a gun and shoots the guy. And, you know, it, he, so he's victorious. There's, there's an important lesson for us. When you have the weapon that can win, you don't have to talk about it. You don't have to defend it. Just use it. And I'm afraid that many Christians get cut up, sliced up, because we don't understand the weapon that we have, the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, it says in Ephesians chapter 6. Constable says that Jesus revealed that the Spirit would convict the world, enlighten the disciples, and glorify Jesus. Now, Holy Spirit, how do we recognize the voice of the Spirit? We want to be Spirit-filled Christians. How do we recognize the voice of the Spirit? Prophetic words from others? Be careful. Sometimes there's false prophets. Dreams. It says men shall dream dreams and women shall dream dreams. Again, yeah, be careful though. Dream interpretation is not always perfect. It's not always inerrant. Inner feelings and peace and joy and, and emotions. 
again, be careful. Maybe God can, can work to you in your heart in some ways. Supernatural intuitions, maybe. Not always. Those things aren't cert certain. Patterns of providence. As you see things sort of working out, God must be leading me here. Maybe. But that's not inerrant. The Bible is kind of a, a, a magical book. Oh, God, guide me. You put your finger in it and you say, oh, that must be God's will for me. Again, be careful. God does that. Look, I'll be the first. God did that for me when I was a little, kid, a little Christian. But mature Christians, we don't, we don't think God, God sort of accommodates to our ignorance. <laughs> be careful. No. When you do that, God gets blamed for a lot of bad stuff. <laughs> the Bible is an unfolding story, the plan of redemption. And God will use it to, to transform your heart and to make you wise and make you a person who's led by the Spirit. That's what we're talking about. Where, where the wisdom of God becomes part of your life because you're in the Word of God. You're hearing it. You're reading it. You're listening to it. You're, you're, you're saying amen to it. You're memorizing it. And the Spirit of God becomes primary in your life. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, as he talks to that, 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 that church, but also it was a general letter, and he said, listen, I want you to look at the connection between the Spirit of God and the Word of God. In Ephesians 5.18, as Paul writes, look carefully then how you, you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Make the, most, the best use of your time. The days are evil. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, let's highlight it for you, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to read this as well. Colossians 3. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to him. To, to God the Father through him. Do you, do, you, do you see the connection there? That he talks about being filled with the Spirit, and this is what should happen. Let the Word of God dwell you richly, and this is what should happen. And, and the, the, the output's the same, because the experiences are the same. When one is filled with the Spirit, he, the, the Word of Christ is dwelling richly. And when the Word of Christ is dwelling richly, we are filled with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God and the Word of God should never be disconnected in our thinking, in our minds, in our hearts. Proverbs 2, we heard the, the reading of the Scripture. That we have to dig for wisdom, like one, one would dig for silver. It's not right. You've got to dig for it. You have to give yourself to Christ and give yourself to, word, to the Word of God that you might be a wise person, one who's growing your faith, one who, who, is, who keeps on being filled with the Spirit, as it says in Ephesians chapter 5. What does it mean to be a spirit-filled Christian? The great sermon uh, in, in, in Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon, when the Spirit of God came, there's a, he's there and he preaches Christ. And I love um, John Stott's thoughts about what happened after that. Because in, in verse, Acts 2, verse 42, after 3,000 came to Christ, it's, that they gave, the first thing it says, 
they devoted themselves to four things. And the first thing they devoted themselves to was the apostles' teaching. Now think about it. Each of them had an, an incredible personal experience of the Holy Spirit. And God, and God used them to, 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 to bring people to Christ. And now they got organized. And they're gonna, and so what are the things we're going to do? The first thing it says before, the community itself is the apostles' teaching. Let me leave you with what Stott says. John Stott. Luke mentions of the Spirit's presence in the church is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, one might perhaps say the Holy Spirit opened a school in Jerusalem that day. Its teachers were the apostles whom Jesus had appointed. They were 3,000 pupils in the kindergarten. We know that these new converts were not enjoying a mystical experience which led them to despise the mind or disdain theology. Anti-intellectualism and the fullness of the Spirit are mutually incompatible because the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. Nor did these early disciples imagine that because they had received the spirit, he was the only teacher they needed, and they could dispense with human teachers. On the contrary, they sat at the apostles' feet, hungry to receive instruction, and they persevered. Since the teaching of the apostles has come down to us in its definitive form in the New Testament, contemporary devotion to the apostles' teaching will mean submission to the authority of the New Testament. A spirit-filled church is a New Testament church in the sense that it studies and submits to the New Testament's instruction. The Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. A spirit-filled church is an apostolic church, a New Testament church, anxious to believe and obey what Jesus and his apostles taught. Holy Spirit, Holy Bible. Your mind never, ever disconnect the two. Let's pray. Oh, God, we thank you that, that years ago you, you chose men and, and you decided that through those men the Bible will be completed. And we have that Bible, Lord, and you've revealed yourself to us in complete form. May we not just love the book, but love the one who, who the book points to. But maybe through, through that book, through this book, come to know you more deeply, Lord. I pray for those who may be here who who need to, to, to trust you in a new way, in fresh ways, so that your spirit would breathe into our life that freshness will give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing our closing song. And if you need to prayer, again, you have the intercessor's room, the prayer room to your left outside the door there. We have before the throne of God above.